Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. I'm really excited about our guest today. Fire Chief David Parsons has proudly served for 21 years in the Oceanside Fire Department. Originally from Tucson, Arizona, David went to the University of Arizona for his bachelor's degree. He later earned his master's in emergency and disaster management in 2017, and he's also a registered nurse. David surfaced as a leader through the ranks of the Oceanside Fire Department. He is the first to graduate from the Oceanside Fire Academy and rise to the rank of fire chief. David's been married to his wife, Donna, for 27 years, and they have two grown sons, and they make their residence in Oceanside. David, I want to thank you for your service and dedication to the Oceanside community. Welcome to Surfacing Leaders. Thank you. I'm privileged to be here. Yeah. So let's start off by giving the audience a quick overview of where you're from and your journey all the way to the Oceanside Fire Department. Yes, absolutely. I born and raised in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, my mother was a professor at the university, uh, Portuguese, and she's Brazilian, so I'm half Brazilian. And uh, I grew up, you know, looking at not sure what I wanted to do, maybe like all young men that age, right? And then you graduate college, I had a degree, well, what am I going to do with this degree? And uh, it was health sciences, and I thought about, you know, pre-med, maybe going medical school or something like that. But I met firefighters at a, at a gym that I happened to work at, actually, temporarily, and those firefighters... When you meet firefighters and you, learn, you look in their eyes, you see the passion of the work that they do and how much they love it and they live it. And uh, that, that sparked a little bit of a, a flame inside of me. And I haven't looked back since in that respect. So you can become a paramedic in the fire service. And that's one of our, that's something I did early on. That's one of certifications that helps you get hired more quickly, provide more advanced care. And with the ideal goal, with the goal of being a firefighter paramedic. I moved around a little bit, worked in New Mexico, worked in Oregon, we moved away from family at the time, had a child in the meantime, and you know that changes your perspective on life when you have when you have that family. And you know, I sat down with my wife. We, I looked looked her in the eyes, and and I said, you know, this is not a hard decision for me. And she she was worried about this decision because I had actually found a kind of what you call the destination job in Portland, Oregon, Portland Fire Department. And I said, uh, you know, the will I regret more? being away from family and raising our child on our own and not having that support? Would I regret more this job versus another job that I can potentially get? And the worst case scenario is I have to work on ambulance as a paramedic for, for a long time. And that was an easy calculus for me. I just, easy decision. So we moved back. Luckily, I had the skills, abilities, and got picked up by Oceanside within about nine or 10 months of moving back to Southern California as a firefighter paramedic. And that's 22 years ago. I rose through the ranks to fire captain, to division chief, fire marshal, a number of special assignments, and honored and privileged a year ago to be appointed as a fire chief here in Oceanside. Well, that's a, that's a great story. You know, a lot of the times, the things that we do in our life are inspired by, you know, maybe one moment or multiple moments. You know, I know you saw the fire in the firefighters' eyes when they were coming to your gym, maybe seeing how they displayed themselves. But 
where where does this service orient orientated compassion for being a firefighter where does that stem from if you look back on your life so when the reason that that interaction put a spark in me i think you have to have that servant's heart already uh, to some extent right you have to have empathy and you have to have the willingness to give of yourself to others and I think we try to raise our children that way. We try to interact with our uh, the society and our coworkers that way. So, and that can develop and show up in different parts of your life, right? It all depends on your on your on your path. And my path at that moment was just that I had developed that servant's heart. I saw the passion they had. You know, I'm going to pull out a quote for you from, and it's what it's kind of my favorite fire service quote. And it's he's now retired and now deceased fire chief from Chicago Fire Department. And I, I won't have it exact, so I'll do my best for you here. He said, when, uh, I'm gonna actually turn the quote into the Oceanside Fire Department. The Oceanside Fire Department runs 24,000 calls a year. How many calls does the public expect perfection on of those 24,000, all 24,000? They don't expect two dumb firemen in a pickup truck to show up. They expect five brain surgeon decathletes and a million dollar fire engine to come and solve all their problems. I've paraphrased that quote a little bit, but that brain surgeon decathlete part of it is kind of describes who we try to be. So when I talk about that servant's heart and I connect it to that quote, it's, you know, I grew up, I was an athlete, you know, played soccer my whole life and, and went to college, played soccer in college. And, you know, I always wanted to, I, I always loved healthcare, taking care of others, right? So. When I hear that quote, that speaks to me as like, yeah, I want to be that person. I want to be the person that's that that's giving um, of themselves back. So going back to your question, you have to have that inside of you and that can develop over time, uh, like I said, along your path. And then when that connects to a job like the like a firefighter, firefighter paramedic specifically, it can really connect with somebody and that's what it connected to for me. So probably earlier than that spark that you saw when they were at the gym, you know, maybe developed when you were, you know, young by your parents and, and, yeah. and really put in there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Culture, that's society, family, all those things. And I believe that's what I'm trying to express as leadership to the people around me. And that's how we try to raise our, I think I try to raise my children and I think we should all be that way to each other. Yeah. We're all better for it if we are. Yeah, that's great. It's always great to have that seed. You know, as you rose through the ranks of the Oceanside Fire Department, tell us about your experience doing that. Yeah. So I'm going to bring up a little bit of irony about me personally and, and the fire service. The fire service is very tradition bound, very, very cultured, not unlike the military. You know, there are a lot of procedure and all based in history and a lot, a lot of it based on learning um, that now we have to do things way because of things have gone in the, the way they've gone in the past. But I would say my personality is much more, I'd say, more flexible than the traditional fire service was back when I started. A little bit more critical thinking about why. I asked a lot of questions why. Maybe it was more like the millennials and Gen Zs now. I asked a lot of whys. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't born in the wrong generation. I was a Gen X. but And it's I was a little bit of a square peg in a round hole on that one. But I still loved what I was doing and, and tried to you have to you have to maneuver that the tradition versus are we agile enough and can we change and and I saw leadership that to me was good leadership but maybe not agile enough as it moved forward and when I saw that early on I kind of started to become a student of leadership and 
you know, how can, if I'm ever in those positions, never knowing if I'd make it, how could I do this better? How could I make positive change and more rapid change? Because public safety and the fire service, like, and that's happening with the police department as well, under such demand, right? And, and, and what we're being asked to do is just constantly expanding. And we can't rely on our old traditions and cultures to the negative. There are wonderful things about it. So how, how I developed my style was kind of just becoming a student of leadership, started reading a lot of books, started taking courses, worked on my master's degree. Are you, have you read It's Your Ship, It's Our Ship by Abershoff, yes. Michael Abershoff? Yes. Yeah. That was, a big, that was a big one early on for me, maybe 10, 12 years ago that I got a hold of those books, started digging into it. And that started to speak to me on leadership. Yeah. That's great. I just know in the Navy, because it is, you know, like you said, the fire department, you know, has a lot of those traditions. Mm -hmm. I know in the Navy, when we changed and we became the leader of the people who were, we were leading, they actually sent us to a different command because, you know, you're next to people and you're their friends and they know all of the things that you did wrong and all the things you did right. When you go to another command, Basically, the slate is wiped clean. You rose up through the ranks. Was that was that hard for you to do to to be? Hey, I'm one of the one of the firefighters, but now I'm the, the leader of that group. How did you How did you do that? That is a really good question because there's a there's a real tension in that idea, and the tension is that. A lot of times, people want internal promotions. It helps the organization. There, there's you know, there's a domino effect down the line in terms of promotional opportunities, but also you, you're a known quantity, hopefully a, a, a good known quantity. And there is an idea that sometimes fire chiefs, for example, should come from the outside to bring in new ideas and different ways of doing things. You're not stuck in a rut. Where I was able to navigate that and be successful is I actually, I leaned really hard into that fact. Our previous fire chief was from the outside a good, a good fire chief. But what I was able to do, and, and actually this is a true, uh, a true unique thing about me is I'm the first fire chief that went through uh, an Oceanside Fire Academy. Normally you would get an academy from another location, come in, do some on the job training, throw you on the line. And, right. you know, so I was part of the first generation that was a professionalize the professionalization of our intake and training process. So when I can only think of maybe two or three personnel that might be left on our department that didn't attend an academy. So when I'm able to sit in front of them on that first all hands meeting that I had with them and say, and I said that a lot of people didn't even realize that, uh, I kind of saw some shoulders kind of pull back and people rise up a little bit and say, Hey, yeah, he did go through an academy. That's I, I, I went through an academy. So I, I leaned into that quite a bit, but then going back to my my previous question of how I was maybe a little more different, a little different, a little more progressive, a little trying to think about leadership from, I guess, a more academic viewpoint going years back as I rose to the ranks is I brought new ideas. I brought new perspectives. I think I brought language and words that maybe they hadn't heard before. And I was only going to be myself. That's the only way you can be a true leader is you got to be yourself. And um, I was going to live or die by those, by, by my values and my virtues. And I put it out there both before I was selected because I needed to get the labor union support to allow me to even get in the room and, and then in front of the interview panel. And then 
of course, you need to stay on that path and be true to your words and your values. And so far, it's worked out well. So leaning into that concept of I was one of them and still am. Yeah, it's, it's great you're able to do that because a lot of times you're friends with them yeah. and then you're leading them and then they don't want to talk to you and tell you everything. And yeah. it's, it's a hard transition. You just talked about some of the things that you did differently from the way it was to what it is now. Mm-hmm. Do you have any examples that you could share of things that you did differently and that you're doing right now? Yes. I think traditionally in the fire service, the fire chief is often, uh, you know, I know in my organization, and maybe this is a term used in other organizations, you know, the accusation or the, you know, cast an aspersion at the leadership that they're just in their ivory tower. They don't understand us. They don't, they don't, you know, they've lost touch and, you know, tried really hard to use language that connected with people on a personal basis so that it, I, I tried to prevent that, hopefully, that aspersion, that language from being used on me. You know, I made to lever- I made sure to leverage the relationships I did have, f- informal leaders, and connecting with the informal leaders of the department to make sure that our past relationships and friendships was used for positive. And then, and then I had to work really hard to connect with the new generation that was coming in. So, other things that I might have done differently was when. When they refer to the ivory tower, what they're referring to is a disconnect, right? And there's always this thing about communication from the top down. And and I, I, before I even applied for the position, I thought really hard. I wanted to look at models that would work for me. And I looked at a model of high, a high-performance organization. And I looked at what were the concepts that I wanted to get out to them immediately on my first day and say, here's who I am. Here's the This is the chief's vision for the department. We already have a mission. We have a value statement. We have a vision that the department has, but they always want to know what the chief, what does the chief see? Because I'm a person, I'm not words on a paper. So I came up, I did a lot of research, looked at what spoke to me and what the needs of the department were, maybe five to 10 years down the line. And there were four concepts that that I'm constantly putting in my emails that I'm connecting with any leadership statement I say to the team. And it's about 360 degree communication, you know, all the way around. I, I close loop communication when it's a one-on-one, even if it's a simple question that I don't know the answer to, I make sure to get back to that person. I, I don't delegate those things. Teamwork, of course, working within a team to solve a problem, collaboration, having teams work together to solve a problem, trying to bust down those, those traditional hierarchies in the fire service. And I think they exist in the military too, that, that can kind of stifle innovation, stifle agility. But then- Really the most important part, and I, I tailored this message basically for all ranks, all the way to the, an EMT who's our newest employee and knows very little, and that's leadership at all levels. And that's because an EMT who's got a few months on or a fire or a firefighter paramedic with just a couple of months on the job, they're out driving on a $1 million piece of fire apparatus, or they're driving in an ambulance that's worth $300,000, and they're going on into situations that most people don't want to go into or can't imagine going into. And we're trusting them to serve, protect, save a life, put out a fire, extricate a victim from a car accident. So you have a hundred and 
what would you say, 140 people if you're, or 112 people? 112 operations or yeah. those are safety people. So when I say safety, like a firefighter on either fire engine or ambulance, uh, right. that sort. Uh, what I neglected to mention is we have an EMT basic life support program. It's a special program that provides young people that are looking at the career. It's almost uh, like an internship or an apprenticeship. And they are on the basic life support ambulances and and they're a partner on the advanced life support ambulances as well. So that's another 30 people. So in fire operations, the total is probably about 140, 150. That's great. Let's go down to one fire station. Talk to us about you know a day in the life in one fire station, because I think that'll give us a strong understanding of what happens at all the other fire stations and how that collectively then comes all together. But what does it look like? say, at, at one of the typical fire stations, what, what, what's a day in the life? Yeah, uh, it's, it's really interesting. And I think, I dare say it's fun. You know, you, you, you show up, you know, we have, I think, again, I, I don't, I think, I don't know if businesses all operate this way, like a uh, private business, but if you're on time, you're late. If you're a half hour early, you're on time. So we all show up a half hour early and there's a reason for that. And that's because you don't want to be the, the person that gets a call 15 minutes before shift change. And now you're holding over for another hour and a half because you're transporting a patient to the hospital and you just missed your child's event at school or getting home to take over childcare, which happens a lot. So we start a half hour, you show up a half hour early, you get your uniform on, you get your gear on the on the apparatus. That's the minimum you got to do. And then when the, the clock hits, the, the company officer, it's fire captain, uh, generally lines out the day with the crew, um, says here, we also have a conference call with the battalion chief and it talks about what the daily activities are. And basically- So you have a conference call every single day? Yes. Oh, that is, yeah. that is great. That's, and that's a relatively new thing. It actually started before my, my, uh, my reign here, but it's only been uh, two or three years we've been doing that. It was a huge, huge change in our communication process. So the battalion chief gets all the captains, uh, everybody calls in. Yep. Here's the training that's going on today. Here's here are the other needs. Here's how many fire engines are out of service if they're broken down or ambulances, anything unu unusual, unique. And then any questions from the captains, captains will ask questions. And then if there's a subject you need to talk about, oh yeah, let's talk about this after the call and, and they'll do that. That that was a big deal. And I dare say that's a that's good advice for any leader, any organization is to kind of have those daily communications. It just it's the connection and you are now having the pulse of the organization when you hear those things. Cause you start to hear rumors and I'll, I'll listen in the background. I, I don't involve myself unless I really, really need to, or I'm invited to, they'll hear, okay, the, there was a question about a promotional opportunity coming up and I need to make sure I address that in my next email, things like that. And they know that I might be listening and we don't hide that. <laughs> but yeah, so we have a conference call within 15 minutes of that shift change. And then, and then the fire captain basically is in charge of their day and the shift. Yes, we have scheduled training, things like that. But he'll say, here's our priority. The priorities, honestly, for the department and the station are the same always. Take care of your people. Make sure they're fed. If they need rest, get them rested. Get your training in. Run calls. You know, those after that, we'll figure it out. We'll get the rest done. Well, you know, administrative stuff, paperwork stuff. You know, yes, you know, we're going to meet our requirements and our daily needs for paperwork. But take care of your people first. And do the do the mission. What is the mission? Serve the public. And that's number one. And uh, like I said, the organization is the people. So we always try to make sure we get the food. You know, we plan out food because you, you never know when that's going to go by the wayside. And you're going to miss a meal. We plan out. Hey, I'm on a I'm on a forced overtime. I got forced to stay in a, a couple of 
maybe your employees that are held back for staffing reasons, they might need a little bit more, a little bit of a rest at lunchtime to get re-energized and do the service again. So, but yeah, from essentially at our organization from seven to five, you're on company time and you're, you should be training. You should be, ah, I missed one of the most important things. It's basically a requirement that you work out at least an hour every day and get your exercise in. That's part of the physical wellness that affects you mentally. Yes. But also there's a public expectation that we are physically able to do our jobs. And so that's also a part of that daily schedule. And then um, we're on a 24-hour shift in our organization. That's the most usual one. And there's some variations of that. And after five, they've usually made a big crew dinner. They're sharing talk at the table, hopefully positive talk. And they eat together, generally cook together, clean together. And then, yeah, I know in my time, we'd watch a movie after that if we could. In the meantime, you're running calls. Plans are always made to meet reality and get destroyed. So, but we try. I was doing some research and I found a, a quote that really hit that and says, in fire, you can plan everything out to the minute and a minute before that, everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. It, yes. So what, I'll give you an example for that. Uh, one of my special assignments was on um, a federal incident management team. It's something that you can step forward. I'll say volunteer for. I mean, it was a paid position, but uh, it's not something you have to do in the Oceanside Fire Department, any fire department. But it's a team of I'm going to step back. When I put in for that, I wanted to learn more and spread my wings outside of my department. I was already a fire captain. I thought, well, hey, I'm hot stuff. You know, I'm going to join this incident management team. I know what I'm doing. And the one that's interesting about the California Fire Service is rank goes out the door when you walk into these environments. It's all about, there is a qualification process, but it's about capabilities and personality. And so I walked in and, and I'm not, I'm anything but an ego-driven person. I thought, ah, you know, I should, I should fit right in. And, and I look around and I see engineers, which is you know, rank below a captain or a chief, battalion chiefs doing what looked like was an entry-level position. But this is a true definition of a team. You know, rank doesn't matter what's on your collar, goes right out the window. And we would essentially support the firefighters who are solving these gigantic wildfire problems. That was the main, our main task. Our main mission was protecting communities, getting the big wildland fires out. I did that all over the country, including Georgia and Oregon. Yes. And it was the most, one of the most fulfilling things I've done because you're working with like, everybody's, everybody's a high performer. Didn't matter what their rank was. Um, but in going to your question, yeah, we would make a plan every day, every 12 hours, 24 hours. We had a new plan in place, new plan in place. And when those fires are running and gunning, they, they'd come in at the hour before we're submitting our plan. Well, this just happened. It blew through the line. There's houses threatened. This is going on. Get that plan, tear it up, start all over again. And something that we worked on for four hours, we had to go and redo in an hour under a crisis situation. And the reason those plans are important because it's things like the frequency channels that the firefighters are working on. One of the most one of the most important things that we do is making sure our communications are good because people will die if that's not right. We talk about where water drops, where the, what the helicopter resources, how to call a helicopter if you're getting run over by fire, things like that. It's a very important document that we put together. There's safety message in there and there's a lot of, you know, what's the local weather, which is a critical item. So 
when when we're early on in those big fires, it's amazing how dynamic they become. And you're doing all this work and all of that work can be torn up and destroyed in, you know, in a half hour's notice, and then we got to redo it. But but when going back to the people that are in those situations, they're so high performing that we all just say, take a deep breath. All right, start again. Let's get this done. And, you know, we'd be up till three or four in the morning. It's been, you've been up 24 hours, but the mission is so critical to make sure that information gets out to the people that are actually fighting the fire. And that's what we do is support them, that there's no alternative and we wouldn't have it any other way than to be there. What's the balance of, you know, I was doing some research and it says, you know, eight of the 10 largest California fires have happened in the last five years. So these mega fires where you're pulling together different organizations from all over the United States and then the sensors that you have to have on, hey, the wind is shifting, that the humidity is going up or going down, whether we're going to maybe use water on this or not, and where's the water source? Mm-hmm. Take us through an example. I mean, just an example, maybe a, a fire that you were involved in that you were brought in. How did, how did, because speed to the fire is probably really important. The earlier you can maybe have containment on it or put it out, it doesn't spread as fast. But take us through just an example that that you had being, you know, coming together and then how things changed and how you were able to do that and meet the need. Yes. Well, so it actually starts before the incident, right? We we have we have red flag warnings for example in Southern California, but those are public warnings, but at the fire station level or at the at the uh, departmental level, we're putting out information days before these things are coming and we're and we're letting them know that hey there's you know this is a high heat low humidity day this is Santa Ana wind day things like that so mentally we try to get ready before it ever happens you know and if it doesn't happen great no harm so when when a fire typically breaks out we have what's called initial attack IA for short and initial attack is going to be that first it could be anywhere from 6 to 12 hours where the local units, whatever they are, could be federal, state, or local government are fighting a fire. They're not able to contain it. It's it's too rapid, too fast. Conditions are, are too much. Then it goes into what we call extended attack. Extended attack is when we bring in the support teams to back up the crews. That can be as what we call a type three team, which is like a local team. Oh, it's, we think it's, you know, this is a couple of days out, no problem. Or it could be a type two or a type one team, which is the mega fires. And I was on a type two team. So when we pull up, we've got an incident meteorologist who sets up local, first of all, they'll get, they'll look and see what the local weather conditions are, but we can set up local remote air weather stations. Right there. Yep. Yeah. I can tell you where, so most of my fires were federal forest lands. There are no communications. So our comm group is very active, very quick, setting up portable repeaters on mountaintops, trying to get coverage in this area. And it's that there's a real, it's art more than science, honestly. It's like, okay, how are we going to get access down in this valley where the fire is? And it's, it's crazy. It's uh, those guys are amazing. A very technical group, but yeah, we have, so we have communications. We have the situation unit. I worked in the plans unit and we have a situation unit, or sorry, resource unit. And I would, and then the situation unit figures out what is the weather conditions, what are the potential for the fire, what, where is it going to go, how many resources do we need, et cetera. Helped manage the resources. We're all part of the planning section. And what we're doing is we're doing the planning for the next day. Putting all this together, what are we going to do for the next day? Operations is taking care of the problem right now with whatever they've got available. Got it. Yeah. So the doc, we prepare a document every 20, well, it's every 12 hours 
pretty much that says, here's the weather, here's here's the communications. Hey, there's a dead spot here for this communication, so be careful. And that's what I was talking about, that planning piece. Uh, we put that together every 12 hours for the crews that are out there. And when a fire blows, blows through a line or something, then that whole document gets blown to pieces and we start over again. Um, but yeah, it's that choreography of of human endeavor. It's that creative thinking. Every It's really interesting because every fire was so different. They were, we never did it the same on every fire. That's because everything had, a, there were so many different variables and it's, it's kind of weird to think about. We're so used to that hierarchical organization where we have a procedure for everything, but on these mega wildland or any wildland fire, not, yeah, there's a standard way to kind of address problems. But once you get big like that, it's so dynamic that you have to be very flexible in your thinking, how you're going to solve problems. What's the key to making that happen? Oh, the, it's probably it's just a simplistic word, but the teamwork and collaboration amongst the group that I was a part of is really incredible. And so I, I guess what I will say the key is though on that is that there is no such thing as that's not my job. There's no such thing as, you know, that, that, that belongs in that shop, not in this shop. If I was asked to do something, even though it wasn't part of my resources and planning part of thing, I'd stepped up and do it. And every other person on that team did the same thing. So if you want to translate what we were doing to a problem outside of the fire service, it would be that you have to create the culture and the environment that there's no such thing that's, that's the only thing I'm going to do, right? right? I'm the only, I, this is my job. There's no such thing. You know, first of all, everybody has different talents. But second of all, to solve a problem, it's all hands on deck, whatever that problem is, you know, and I'm going to step back and go sideways a little bit with a, with a mentioned a quote that you had earlier. Um, when Hurricane Katrina hit Louisiana, there was research done on what worked and what didn't work. And a lot didn't work. A lot was very poor, but there were things that did work. And what, what did work was, so you have the hierarchical environment, right? That chain of commands, asking permission to do things or having procedure to do things. That failed in, in Louisiana, Hurricane Katrina. But what did work was networked. And I used a different term, but the term I use for that command or management structure is a network structure where yes. you have multiple teams that are all cross-pollinating knowledge to each other. And, you know, I, th I think, honestly, even though the fire service is pretty hierarchical, the, the incident management team environment that I'm describing to you is, is much more of a networked environment. Yes, I report to somebody, all that, you know, that's all fine and dandy, but to solve problems? No, that was going across teams to solve problems. Oh, I love that because yeah. that's what all organizations are today. In the Navy, we had the same thing. The commanding officer was the commanding officer, but only involved in less than 1% of the decisions made was just like, hey, do you have the resources that you need? How are we doing with this? Is there anything that I can do to, to help you? And it was all pushed down. And, and to some of these people, again, who are 19 years old. Yeah. The, I, was, I was watching a movie about the hot shots, and it was called Only the Brave. I don't know if you've seen it. I have not seen that one, but I, I believe, is that the one about the Granite Mountain hot yeah. shots? Yes. Yeah. I'm aware of the story, though. Yeah, it was, it was, it was very, very interesting. And, and you could see how things changed very dynamically. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, they, they didn't, they all perished when that happened. But it was, it was very interesting. Can you share with us, you know, some experiences that you've had specifically in some of these like mega fires where you've seen the organization have to make a big shift and what happened and how that then played out. Yeah. Well, honestly, 
that probably happens on every fire. We are going against mother nature and there's there, we have tools and we use those tools, but every every large fire has major changes. But what I'll what I will do is I'll tell you a story that kind of where, where I was more inserted into a situation that really changed my thinking on some things is that so you know as a as a division chief or a battalion chief in our organization you take what's called a strike team out on some of the that's how we order resources for fire engines say we need a, a strike team of engines and that's five fire engines with a chief officer that takes that leads the way you all go as a group and you show up well we were a, we were a, I was a strike team leader and I had a trainee and we have these five these five fire engines none of who I worked for my organization they were all for other organizations here in North San Diego County and we got called up to the Mendocino complex fire. I want to say that's 2018. And we were we were given kind of this assignment way out in the hinterlands and didn't have a lot going on. We're a little bit of PR work and making sure that keeping keep the community, make sure they felt safe, things like that. But I had a lot of young people that really wanted to engage. And, and so they asked me to ask and I asked the, uh, my chain of command, hey, can we get on a more active division? And we got plugged into where the fire was moving and we came in and I got to be honest, we probably put ourselves in a bad situation. Um, mm. We have what are called watch out situations. This it's a list of, of things that this is going to, this is a potential to get somebody hurt or killed. And we know what they are. One of them was you're in country, not seen in daylight. Another one is you have not received the plan for the day. And I mean, I could start checking off those those watch out situations that I had put our crew in our our strike team into. I mean, there's a need. This happens. It's not that un necessarily unusual what we did, but I started realizing that we were in a we were in kind of a rough spot. We got we showed up at this division and it was dusk and it was getting dark. Didn't have much of an understanding of where the line was, where the fire was. We had got plugged in with uh, the division supervisor who said, here's what you're going to do. You're going to support that firing operation. And because um, we were engines, the, the, the hot shots do the firing. Uh, we can do it too. But in that case, they were doing it. And I got to tell you, it, it didn't go that well. We were, we were, we had uh, crews that were feeling unsafe. And here I am trying to lead them, trying to do a job. Actually, the trainee is doing the majority of the work. So I'm getting, it's a trainee that we're trying to uh, get qualified. And you know, we're probably in a little over our heads because of the situation we had, I had led us into and said, so the next day we actually got put back in our original assignment and said, okay, we need to take a deep breath and figure out, you know, let's, let's do our job here. And that's a learning situation. Well, it was literally the next day that a battalion chief up on that division died from a water drop. There was miscommunication, a big water drop hit a tree, the tree fell over oh. and literally hundred yards probably from where we were standing. And, you know, I look at that as one of those, I wiped the sweat off my brow and say, that was a close call of where, you know, I had put our team in danger through good intent, but it was dangerous and had kind of gone across these shout out, watch these watch out situations. I can tell you that was a huge learning, learning situation for me. But the irony is that that happens all the time. We're all that. That's the fire service, especially on a on a big wildland fire. Is you, you get into tough situations and you have to overcome them, and and hopefully, you know, by the grace right. that you get through that, okay. If you were to coach your younger self, who's in that position, what yeah. would you say to that person now? What did you learn? Yeah, what I learned is, I need 
so what I was trying to do in that situation, you're right. I was my younger self. Thanks for pointing that out. I was, I was trying to meet, I was trying to meet a request of my young people around me. And I wanted to, I don't know, for lack of a better word, maybe please them and say, yeah, let's get in, let's get in and do something. But the wiser, more mature self would have said, this is a really bad idea because by the time you show up there, it's going to be right. dark. I it would have had forethought, right? right? Instead of trying to meet the the needs of my my group, I wasn't thinking about the greater needs of of the situation or the greater needs of our safety. And I would have said, there is a saying I got from a firefighter that worked for me when I was a captain for a long time. And he saw, said, Cap, slow as pro, slow as pro. Oh, wow. And that saying comes from, you know, when you have that experience and that knowledge to say, you know what, take a deep breath. We'll, we'll get this done, whatever the emergency is. You don't need to sprint to do anything because you're going to make mistakes. You're going to trip and fall. You just need to move with purpose. That's a great saying. Yeah. I'm going to steal that. Yeah, please do. <laughs> In the submarine force, we always had a relationship with the element of water because we operated in water. And that relationship was based upon where we were in the water. So just as an example, there were channels, sound channels in the water based upon thermal gradients. So if between the surface and 200 feet, 200 feet, there was a thermal gradient. If you were above that, you're a lot more likely to be heard by someone else. If you're able to know where that thermal gradient was, and sometimes it was 200 feet, sometimes it was 300 feet, sometimes it was 400 feet, and it changed drastically all the time. If you got below that, the environment that we were in was gonna be something positive for us. At the same time, every second of every minute of every hour, every week and month that we were under the surface of the ocean, that water was trying to kill us. And so we had this you know, relationship with water that had tremendous respect because if we got too deep, it's going to crush the entire submarine. If we got too deep and there was a, uh, a, a water leak that came in, it would cut you in half. Is there a similar relationship that you have with the element of, of fire? Yes, definitely. Uh, we have, I, I would say we have a, we have two relationships with water and you know, one with water, one with fire, because we have. You do. And, yeah. and even wind and air and earth. So yeah. you have all four of them. Yeah. But specifically water and fire in that it's because of the different, there, maybe it's not well understood. Fighting structure fires, residential commercial structure fires is very, very different than vegetation fires and wildland fires. Very different in, in pretty much all aspects. I mean, we we train every day for these high consequence events of, of a structure fire. And that's, it's all about getting the wet stuff on the red stuff as fast as possible. Get rid of the hazard, right? If we can't get rid of it fast, we're pulling, if someone's trapped, we're pulling them out of there. But honestly, stopping the fire is the number one way of preventing harm to people. And by the way, it keeps our firefighters safe also, because the longer things burn, especially with all the artificial plastics and products that are, in, that are made right now, it really, things burn much hotter than they ever have as time has gone on. So- that's a structure fire environment and water. Two things are most important to a firefighter in a structure fire environment is water and their radio. Um, that's how we take care of the problem or those are the tools to take care of the problem. Then uh, the other hand tools involved as well. But when you get into the vegetation, the wildland environment, the one constant is communication is that radio, but really the, the more primary tool for a big firefight is going to be putting fire on the ground. We, we remove the hazard by using what is the hazard, right? Right. Fire, fighting fire 
fire to fight fire. That's the, the saying, and that, that goes way back. But it's, it's actually very, again, maybe more art than science on that. It's very scientifically driven, but when we get trained in that sort of thing, you know that when you put fire on the ground, it changes the fire behavior of that fire miles away because it changes those heat gradients, right? right? And it draws fire. Where we put it down is gonna affect how it's drawn, how it's moved. Oh, it does, it pulls yes. it towards it. Yeah. So you, Gen- can, you can then- Yeah, we, we, can, we can create movement of fire. Now, not, you know, not, not to very detailed, in detailed ways, but you can sort of move fire with, if you put fire in the right spots. And of course, the other thing it does, it removes the fuel in between. What we'll do is we'll do that off of neighborhoods, for example. If there's a neighborhood that's that's on the, what we call the wildland urban interface, right? Where the forest or the or um, the brush comes up to homes. We'll, if the wind conditions are correct and it's safe enough to do, we'll, we'll put fire off of that, take the fuel away. So when the fire comes, it either, it can't burn anymore or the impact of it's much less. That's kind of primary we use, primary, relationship with fire that we have in using it to take care of the problem. Right. So you have that same thing. It's it's a respect that, yeah. and in a lot of cultures, you know, fire represents passion or enthusiasm, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it represents, you know, can represent tremendous destruction. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Can you share uh, a particularly memorable incident or rescue that highlights the dedication and teamwork of your firefighters? Oh, there are, there are boy, probably too many to even think of. So I have, it's hard to nail down. I, I am good. I'll talk about, let me start with maybe a simpler story that, that, that sort of illustrates what we try to be in the fire service. We, uh, the, the godfather of, of the fire service and customer service, his name is Alan Brunicini. He was the retired and now passed away fire chief of Phoenix Fire Department. Mm-hmm. He kind of wrote the book on customer service and the fire service going above and beyond what we would normally do. Um, And so he had a story where his crew, he didn't, he really empowered his crews. There was a man who was, he was doing his own concrete work, trying to build a house and he had a heart attack while he was doing it. He was all alone. And he had poured all this concrete, has this heart attack. They take care of business. They get him off to the hospital. Well, the crew had some expertise in, in concrete and you know that if you don't finish it, if you don't do it right, right. you're going to ruin that whole thing. And it's thousands of dollars, right? So right. they went and finished the concrete job. Oh, wow. And, you know, that, that's a, that concept is something that I know I try to definitely push in, in my department. And they express it now on almost on a weekly basis. I get the stories. We had just a, a few months ago, uh, a husband and wife, he was taking his wife to the hospital. She was in labor and the contractions started to come a couple minutes apart. So they drive by fire station number two in Oceanside. They pull in. He he asks for help. They, there was not, not an ambulance at that station. Uh, so they called. So it took some time to get the ambulance there. They stabilize her. They they think that it's going to be safe enough to go to the hospital. They're, so they put her in the ambulance to go to the hospital. Well, you know, we want the husband to try and be with the wife. So he gets in the ambulance to go with. He leaves his truck and we, we do this often. We take care of people's vehicles. If they get in these bad situations, we'll try to either pull it in a parking lot or if, even bring it to the fire station on occasion to hold off. So he left his truck at the fire station and the crew that was left just noticed that, you know, he looked like he was very busy, like a messy truck, but in a work, in a work messy, right. right? So they took it upon themselves. They cleaned and washed his truck. They, they kind of, they even waxed it, I believe. 
And they got in, they drove the truck down to the hospital so that he could get it and they let it be a surprise. And, you know, what better way to take care of, of people, right? Those little extra things that, that show that empathy, that show that we're serving the community and it felt good for them to do. And they did it for no other reason than they just wanted to take care of somebody in a situation where he's freaking out and stressing out about the birth of his baby. And, and a, the birth of a baby in an uncontrolled environment, whether it's the back of your car or an ambulance is never a good thing. It's right. not a, it's just not as positive as doing it in a controlled environment. So a lot of stress and things like that, but that's a story of, of how um, our people can really make a difference in the community and wrap our arms around the community so that they wrap their arms around us. And we're in this, we're on this journey together to, to serve and, and take care of each other. Yeah, that's great. The other day we were just having a quick conversation to prepare for this. And you talked about how emergency management response and how um, being a firefighter has changed in the past 20 years. Can you take us through what the big changes that you've seen? You know, the, it's, it's hard to understate the amount of responsibility that is placed on the fire service now. You know, it, you can go back 40 years and you had in the 70s, you had the really big um, wildland fires in California that changed the fire service and said, we need to be better at wildland fires, vegetation fires. Then you get into the 80s and emergency medical became a big part of what we did. Uh, I don't know if, if hope, hopefully people can remember the show Emergency with Johnny and Roy, yes. right? That was such a huge impact on the fire service because believe it or not, they were legitimately doing, that was really realistic TV making. It was very good, it, much better than even the stuff you see now. It was very realistic on the things that they were doing. So you, you had EMS come in. Then in the 90s, you had hazardous materials that became a, a People were dying for the hazardous materials incidents and chemicals and advancing society, you know, and now you get into the, the 2000s and up to the modern era and you have a pandemic, you have um, terrorism, active shooters, the amount of knowledge and the amount of skill, the skill set that you have to have as what we call a firefighter, which is a misnomer, it's false advertising, right. is off the charts and we we have to just train on so many things and to know enough to be able to be competent in these things it is truly difficult to be to be that head of the game and that's where again that's where the solutions of having a very agile organization you know you got to get you got to train and trust get that out there people that have passion with a project you've got to tag them and support them Everybody has something that fulfills them. You know, we have like a, a firefighter medic who who loves being part of the SWAT medic program. And we, if we didn't have him, we would not be as good as we are to support our active shooter stuff because he's done work with the SWAT program. And we got people that work with search and rescue. Well, they make us better, you know, on our, what we call our technical rescue stuff team. You know, I did emergency management on these big wildland fires. So I'm, I'm really good at the planning, this, this, strategy part of the job. So I brought that back to the department. It's So the challenge is immense. I think what I want to say at the end of this uh, conversation or this part of the conversation is that we have so many talented individuals and so such that we have so many abilities that they're working on, that they're improving upon. And you have to take advantage of that. If you've got people in your organization, you've got to find who has talent in something and then you need to you need to make that grow, make that blossom because they're going to take your organization to the next level. They're going to make you better, make the organization better. And that's the only way you can survive in this dynamic environment. Share with us 
a, a great example of leadership that you've seen throughout your career. Who was the leader? What was the story in and around that leader? And what did you learn from that person? So I've had a number of mentors and one who is still a friend. He retired as a division chief in our organization. He was a member of Urban Search and Rescue Task Force 8, which is the San Diego County FEMA task force that would go to any major incident across well, the world, but in the United States. And that task force actually was on uh, Ground Zero at 9-11 and did work on Ground Zero. Oh, wow. And he was a major player on that task force. But through personality differences, through challenges in the organization that really maybe didn't allow him to flourish as he could have, he sort of hit a ceiling in our organization and, and was not able to promote up and, and maybe do as much as he was capable of. Because you, know, you can probably gather he's a very capable person. Right. Um, but he also had high standards and he helped people to high standards. And that can rub people the wrong way in the wrong environment. You know, and we're also talking 20 years ago right now. So um, he, he was someone who got pushed he, he kind of hit a ceiling and it became very difficult for him to, 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 I mean, he did not reach his goals. Let's put it that way. He didn't reach his goals. So what, what he did though, was he, you know, we I would talk to him. I actually just had a lunch with him the other day and we, we talk about this and, and I say, oh, you know, I'll tell him that was really wish you'd have been treated a little differently in that situation. I really wish, you know, or I, t and I tell him, I said, your name is still talked about today in the positive things that you did and the, and the influence you had. And he looks at me with a smile and says, I, I did, I did what I was loving. I, I was happy. I was happy doing it. And he just had that attitude of eh, it water off his back. It didn't bother him. Cause, and the one thing I did get out of him on that, he got fulfillment out of that task force situation. Right. And that's kind of almost what I did with my incident management team assignments on the federal government is what I learned from, from someone like that is that, you know, and that's when I was a little younger early on and I saw that stuff happening and going, oh, this is very unfair and I'm unhappy. And, you know, am I going to be fulfilled? Am I, you know, am I headed down the right path? And when you have a mentor that maybe had a tough time with something, but he looks at you and he smiles and said, I, I did the greatest job ever. I was happy. And it, it gave me that perspective that, you know what, I need to, I need to step back, not be ego driven about something and, and appreciate what I have and what I'm capable of. And that helped me be better as I moved up because for sure, here's one piece of advice that I think uh, the fire service really had a hard time getting over is that retired chief of Phoenix, Alan Brunacini, he said it, egos eat brains. And hmm. I saw that, I saw how that affected the fire service. You know, it's a very, it's look, it's very macho ego, ego driven job back in the day, especially. And that was one thing I never wanted to be a part of. And that my mentor, that division chief helped me see that in the right way. When we started this conversation off, you were saying, hey, when I came in, I probably rubbed some people the wrong way or probably ruffled some feathers. Did your interaction with that mentor that you're just talking about, maybe just he being himself, do you think that maybe impacted you saying, hey, I just have to be myself and who I am? Because when we can come from our, our natural self, and not be not be a jerk about it, but we can come from our natural self. Then we then we can elevate ourselves to be the best leader. One hundred percent. And I actually thought those I thought those exact 
thoughts and ideas just yesterday when I was kind of thinking about some of my leadership and and my mentorship is is because I had and not, not just him there was a, a couple of others I had mentors that you know they did the right thing despite the fact that it may not have helped their career may not have helped the situation they were in I'm like okay uh I I definitely need to be just and this is probably the most critical thing for any leader. You must absolutely 100% be yourself and be authentic all the time. Oh. If if you try and pull anything over anybody, you will get you will fall flat on your face. And I have an example that, you know, thank goodness I learned that lesson. I, I did that soon after I promoted a fire chief. We had we were going to have a new battalion chief hiring process. Now, promotional process, uh, again, probably like the military, it's very competitive. In our situation, you test against your buddies and your friends, and you're all trying to get that promotion, and it's a big deal. Well, we have special assignments that you can come into the office or administrative work or training work, and it kind of gives you a leg up. Honestly, anybody that does that is gaining skills or showing that they have skills that they're ready for that next level of leadership. Well, we had an opening in one of our divisions as a very sought after position. And here I am about to have a battalion chief test a couple months later. And the division chief calls me up and he says, you know, I have this idea. Got this. We got someone who's who's ready to fill the spot. He's not he's not a candidate for the test. He doesn't want to promote up. This might be better if we're trying. If one of the things I want to do right off the bat was really give um, have staff or uh, the firefighters trust my testing process because that can be up and down and that promotional process is so competitive. I, I wanted to build trust in that. And I didn't want to get leave the impression that I was uh, giving a leg up to anybody, especially early on. It's like one of my first things that I'm trying to do. So so he said, makes a suggestion. I'm like, that's a really good suggestion. That way I'm not going to give anybody a specific advantage. And I'm, I'm showing that I'm a fair dealer, you know, level playing field for everybody. Well, he calls me back and he goes, you know, if you need... Uh, I'll send the email and say it was a it was a training need. I'll I'll take the hit for you on this one because you know these guys really wanted to come into this position. And I said, you know, hey, I really appreciate that offer. That's somebody looking out for me, wanting to right. you know protect my as a new chief, protect me. And I said, you know, I I appreciate that, but look, that is going to be disingenuous, and I don't know if that'll get out. I don't. I wouldn't ever want that, and and that's not who I am. So listen, just. We're going to be honest, 100% transparent and honest as to why we're doing this. And he calls me back another time and he says, you know, I it happened so quick. I didn't tell you, you were on speakerphone when you were saying that stuff. And if, imagine if I had wow. gone a different direction, you know. <laughs> um, but yes, hide it. Yes, yeah. hide it. Yeah. Right, right. And he said, you know, and that, and that was on me. I didn't let you know, but just so you know that, you had a couple people just kind of nodding their heads going, okay, this is different than what we've been experiencing. And, and I was really working hard on that foundational trust and from the beginning and that fairness. And look, uh, I'm not going to always give them an answer that people want and not always going to agree with my things. But if, if I just 100% show transparent with who I am and, and act that way and speak that way, I'll be okay. But yeah, don't ever, if you're a leader, 100%, you must be transparent. You must be value-driven and you have to be expressing who you are in those values. You can't be dishonest about it. It's going to 100% come back and get you. It's sort of interesting because a lot of times when we were in the submarine, you know, when we called general quarters, everyone was on the same network. 
And so you could hear, I mean, everyone was listening. And I, I, I imagine it's the same, say you're out at a incident, you know, everyone's on the same network. And so this thing of everyone's on there, everyone is listening is a good perspective to have, even for, you know, leaders uh, of businesses that you never know when someone's listening. So being transparent is is really important. That was a that was a fantastic story uh, that you shared. I, I I appreciate that. So what advice would you give to someone who aspires to maybe look at firefighting and becoming a firefighter? And what advice would you give to them? There's really, I will say, there's really only probably one trait that you must have, and that's and that's just an intense dedication to the task. So there, look, you can be, I'm going to go back and take back a little bit of my, my brain surgeon decathlete statement, because you, you don't have to be a brain surgeon. I mean, that's what the public expects, but that all of that stuff can be learned. Um, but you just have to have an intense dedication to the task. It is hard work. It's hard work to get in. It's hard work to do, but incredibly rewarding work. If you are given, if you have the idea that this is something you could do and want to do, it truly is within your hands to complete the process with the right mentorship and with the right direction. It, it is a physically demanding job and you have to have certain physical attributes to do it or overcome a lack of attributes. Like, uh, you know, I don't know if people can see me on that. They obviously can't see me, but you know, I'm not a bodybuilder type. I'm a runner type. I was a soccer player. So I've got cardio and but <laughs> this is a funny story. I'm on a, I'm on a fire again with one of my longtime firefighters and he's probably three times my size, all muscle, you know, six, six, four, six, five. Well, we both breathe the same size of air tank bottle, mm. but because he's got to oxygenate maybe three times the muscle that I have, he breathes these air bottles down in, they're supposed to be 30 minute air bottles, mind you. And he's, he's done in 12 minutes, you know, 10 minutes. I'm exerting myself, but I've got my soccer lungs going on. So I'm, I'm breathing down that bottle. I can get about 22 to 25 minutes out of the bottle. And so we're, we're fighting a fire. And then he's all tasking me, cap, cap, we got to get out of here. My bottle, my bottle's ringing. I'm like, ah, man, Jason, all right, we get out of and put it, you know, getting out of a fire, we're doing what we love. Right. So I put on another, he puts on another bottle. I put on another, we go back in and 10 minutes later, we got to get out again. <laughs> but he could knock down a wall if we had to knock down a wall. He could lift, he could lift somebody with one hand out of a hole if he had to. And what, what I'm saying about all this is that a firefighter, I think an American firefighter has a certain connotation to it, has a certain, maybe a, not a prejudice, but you know, we all kind of have a picture in our head as to what that looks like. But um, really, we can use anybody of any type, gender, it doesn't matter who you are, as long as you are dedicated to the task and you have that servant's heart. Yeah, there are there are difficult challenges to overcome physically and sometimes mentally, especially if you become a paramedic or if you start to advance up in the ranks when critical thinking becomes really important. But with the right mentorship, you can do this job. And it's we need actually good people to join us. Few more questions. So what's a leadership skill that you use day in and day out that you feel has really made a difference? Uh, for me, there are some decisions that I have to make on my own that I have to, right? It's, it's, this is the fire chief has to, has to decide what the direction is, but truly I try to keep those to a minimum where my decisions are team decisions. I, 
it, again, it goes back to train, but really trust in this situation, right? I have a very high-performing group of chief officers. Um, we talk about problems or, or solutions to problems or new ideas, and we bounce them off each other, and we come together to solve the problem. Collaborate. Collaborate. Yeah. yeah. I try to make most of any decision I can, I involve others in those decisions. I, I truly do. And, you know, maybe in some environments that could be seen as a negative because you're not, you know, taking charge. But I think that that actually can lead itself to failure because you have that, you have that tunnel vision, right? It's only your perspective and you really must have other perspectives to make good choices on some of these difficult problems that we're dealing with. That's really sound advice. You know, where there's participation, there's buy-in. Yeah. Yeah. So what's one thing that someone listening could do to surface the leader within them? So I mentioned it earlier, but I will say, first of all, you've got to know yourself and understand who you are as a person. Know that you are, I look back to my younger self and like, I was afraid of my weaknesses. I'm like, I don't want these weaknesses to be shown. I don't want people to see this. I'm not good at this, you know, but you really have to kind of face that and say, okay, I'm not good at this. How am I going to overcome this? And that's that journey to that, to that ultimate spot where now you, know, you feel like you can meet that, that leadership task or that the situation that you're, you're faced with. So first of all, know yourself and it's okay to have, to not be that ideal person. Um, but then I, but then if you really want to get there, you need to take the steps to figure that out. You know, I, I mentioned Michael Abershoff's book. I, I kind of read that and I'm like, oh, this speaks to some of my weaknesses. All right. Hmm. I need to change myself a little bit. You know, I don't want to be like him necessarily, but I, this, there's some, there's some nuggets in there. And I just kept kind of digging into that and I kept educating myself and you're going to have times where you do well in leadership, mid-management. There are going to be times where you fail at it and not have the ego to not see those things for what they are, right? It, egos eat brains. It's a, it's a very, I think it's a powerful term is you, you need to be humble about who you are, know yourself. When you get through that learning process, the most important thing that I've found, and, and I'll say it again, is that then it all becomes about 100% be true to who you are. If you're not, it, it's not that I'm minimizing the places that I'm not good at. It's just that I know who I am. I know my values mm. and I'm going to express them. It might sound geeky on an email sometimes that I'm constantly saying some of these things that I'm hashtagging at the bottom. But if I reach, if I reach a certain cohort in the fire department, if I reach a group with different things that I'm saying and doing, then I'm on the right track. You know, they're, they know who I am and they're going to follow me. That is such gold because that sits with inside everyone who is listening to this right now. Everyone can make that shift right now. I mean, you can make it right now. And that's so powerful that you just shared that with us. All right. So we're going to do uh, some rapid fire. <laughs> All right. Uh, hot or cold? Oh, hot for sure. <laughs> <laughs> You're fire, right? Come on, hot. Favorite restaurant in Oceanside? LTH. Local tap house, right? Fantastic. Love that place too. Favorite professional soccer team? Oh, man. They let me down now. DC United. 
DC United. Okay. Well, that's a pre- American soccer team. Is that what you said? Or no that? favorite? Oh, Arsenal. Arsenal, Arsenal in England. Oh yeah. They let you down too. Yeah. No, but that, they're getting better. So I have high hopes. Yeah. They did let me down for about a decade. <laughs> yes. They're doing a lot better now. Favorite music to listen to in the car when you're in traffic? Oh, this is an easy one. I'm going to freak you guys out though. Death metal. Okay. <laughs> Last question is, I've been reading about the haunted Oceanside, the ghost of Fire Station One. Yeah. Is Fire Station One haunted? Yes, it's haunted. <laughs> Fantastic. And we're moving out of it, so. Oh, you are. Yeah. The historical society will be very happy that you that you yes. confirmed that it's yes. that it's worked. So, you know, uh, David Parsons, I want to thank you so much. All of the gold nuggets that you shared, not only with me but with the entire audience. I think it was extremely powerful. I want to really thank you uh, for your service and thank you also to Donna, you know, because she's serving also. And we really appreciate the impact that you're having here in the Oceanside community and for California at large. So thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.